and we are waiting on Ryan. So I'll just give it one minute and I'll give some quick opening remarks and hand it off to Stephen to hand it off to John, to hand it off to the committee. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. See how we roll, huh, Tommy? <laughs> All right, so let's get let's get cooking then. So we uh, we have a lot to cover. So <clears throat> welcome everybody. Uh, glad to see such a fantastic turnout here. My name is Tommy O'Halloran. I am with Structure Tone, and I am the vice president of the New York chapter of Cornet. And as many of you know, I see a lot of familiar faces here. Uh, since the shutdown, the Cornet chapter has been putting on quite a great deal of content. Uh, today's session is a Wednesday, Wednesday time slot, as we've called the Plugged In series, which has been designed to be our most formal, structured, uh, deep dive of, of subject matter that we put on on a weekly basis. Uh, for those that don't know, we've been doing uh, two coffee chats a week on Mondays and Wednesdays, a happy hour on Fridays that are open mic and meant to be more, uh, you know, kind of just roundtable open discussion. And we've been doing our closed end user only discussions on Mondays and Fridays as well. So uh, with, with this session, I will um, hand it off to our, our committee chair. The content committees have been um, volunteering and putting on the subject matter. Uh, and this is part one of a two-part series that has been proposed by and organized by the Strategy and Portfolio Planning Committee, which is headed by um, Stephen Colthart, uh, Blair uh, Cumming. And I will hand it off to him to introduce the uh, former moderator and the rest of the subject matter experts to talk about um, returning to work. Julie? Great. Thank you very much, Tommy, um, and a warm welcome on behalf of SPP. Um, before introducing today's panel, I just want to quickly explain our thinking behind the peace of mind theme. We landed on peace of mind for today's conversation, which is going to be focused on re-entry and next week's conversation, which is about preparing for what we stole from, from one of the panelists, which is the new near norm, as nothing in life is risk-free. So the risk to each individual and their families, both real and perceived in COVID-19, are and will be different today and and moving forward. So what we want to do is explore the practical steps that landlords, end users and service providers can take to give peace of mind to the building users. So focusing in on today's conversation, as we can now all appreciate, reopening is complex. Thankfully, the industry has given us a wealth of resources, whether it be thought leadership, playbooks or checklists, but what we felt was missing was a candid conversation about the application of those resources to what many of us are focused on right now, the reopening. So what you can expect is a deep dive. We've focused on a few specific moments where landlords, end users and service providers intersect. And we've also asked the panel to focus as much as they can on New York, giving it's the epicenter of the crisis but also that the density of the environment prevents certain unique challenges in the city. So before we get started, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, if you're not already on mute, can you please go on mute? And can you also please stop your video so we can focus on the four panelists? We are scheduled to finish at 1.30. 
John is going to run the panel for 25, 30 minutes, and then we will open up to Q&A. If you have any questions that you'd like to be addressed, please type them into the chat box. So without further ado, um, let's, let me introduce our panelists. Jim Casey is the Director of Real Estate Services for the Americas region at Marsh & McClellan, a global professional services firm. He has 36,000 colleagues across the Americas, so he oversees 370 locations with about 8 million square feet. John Pierce is SVP of Asset Services at the Rockefeller Group, a leading developer, owner and operator, and he is overseeing 5.5 million square feet of their Midtown assets. Ryan is CEO of Convene, which he co-founded in 2009 to bring hotel-style services into meetings, events, and flexible office spaces. Convene has a 1.5 million square feet across 32 locations in the US and the UK. And finally, um, over to our moderator today, John Worcester of JLL. John is focused on the future of work, helping clients develop next generation workplaces and implement them across their portfolios. So over to you, John. Great, thanks everybody. Um, so as Steven said, this is first of a, a two-part series and we wanted to address this material issue of building user peace of mind. So what is it that we are doing as an industry to really focus on that and address that prior to having conversations around redesigning workplaces and some of the things that um, are a little bit more bread and butter as it were. And so um, when we talk about the peace of mind, you know, what are, what are we really saying? Um, one of the things that we talked about as a committee prior to, or as a planning group prior to this was thinking about what is it uh, from a practical step and a pragmatic standpoint beyond some of the philosophical and, and, and high level thinking that we've heard that we can do and where do we intersect um, across the different areas of our industry um, to have impact um, specifically on the experience. So um, a, a couple of ideas came to us. Well, one was um, there's a really high interdependence of the decisions and the decision makers. Um, so what you'll see here today is we focused on three decisions um, that we want to dive in deep and understand three different perspectives also about how people are grappling with that and coping with it and get a little bit of a cross exchange between the, the panelists. So to decide which decisions to focus on, we were conscientious to look at what could we control within our industry um, and, and avoid some topics like uh, transportation. Uh, we're not going to be addressing that um, and instead focus on things that we would have a real um, ability to address within the building. Uh, and then also, where do we have significant overlap um, among our panelists here so that we could engage and kind of get some crossfire, hopefully, uh, with divergent views and, and how those are being reconciled? Because I imagine for many of those on the phone today, um, you're, in the, you're in the throes of that. Like, there isn't a clear game plan of how to do this and then how to come together. Um, so without further ado, I think uh, I'd like to get started and just start with our panelists and hear from them around the overall point of view around what they are doing from an organizational standpoint to increase uh, building user peace of mind. So just let's start with high level and John, I'm hoping you could kick us off. Certainly, uh, and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. 
So Rockefeller, as many of you know, um, has some very large, iconic buildings in Midtown, uh, five and a half million feet, total tenant population in excess of 25,000 people, plus thousands of visitors and hundreds of vendors on any given day when we were at full operation. And just to give a footnote, today we only have in the range of four to 500 tenants in the building, people in the building, plus our own um, staff. So we are operating at a fraction of where we were two months ago. So the psychology of people coming back to the workplace uh, after six, seven weeks working remotely, wherever that might be, um, all the challenges that, that they face as individuals um, with their families, commutation, and re-entering the workplace. It's our objective as a landlord to make that as calming and supportive a process as possible. And we'll get into some of the um, finer details of that, but we have a task force that has been working on reopening for about five weeks, um, tuned into the governor on a daily basis uh, to get his guidance. Uh, there are also REBNY committees, BOMA committees, and so forth that you'll hear from um, perspective from some of those as well. Great. Uh, Jim, no, this, that's a good start. I think we'll, let's let's hear what Jim um, has to say, and then we'll move on to Ryan, and then we can jump into some of these decisions that we're we're looking at. Thanks, John. Um, so yeah, so our focus for reentry is really about the colleague experience, and and you know we need to make them feel comfortable, but we don't want to make it feel like they're walking through a supermarket or. Uh, any of these other retail spaces where there's signs everywhere. So we're, we're trying to make sure that we're very uh, thoughtful about where we uh, do put our signage, that the signage is friendly, whimsical as we would call it, um, but um, not inundate the colleague with, um, you know, signage that, that makes them feel like they're in an unsafe place. We want them to feel very comfortable when they come to work. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's been our focus is trying to create that balance. And um, as well as, you know, just make them feel comfortable about the people that they're working with as well. So making sure everybody's aware of their own responsibility for uh, the environment. Great. And, and Ryan, I, I think you all are uh, complementing a lot of what we've heard already, but I'm wondering if what else are, is on the brain uh, of, of your team? What are you guys doing? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a complicated problem for us because we have to create psychological safety for two different constituents. First is our own employees, right, who are, have to come into our corporate office, right, drive our business. And then we have you know, our on-site property teams and hospitality teams that have to feel safe and comfortable going into a location and actually delivering services and experience to our customers. So that's one part. And then the second part is we have to create environments and doing this in partnership with, with our landlords for, you know, for all of our customers, right? And whether that's a workplace customer who has outsourced their office experience to us that we're running on their behalf or 
a meeting attendee or a speaker that's showing up for what may be a physical meeting, uh, albeit they'll probably be smaller for a while. Um, and so when we think about what we need to do, we have to prioritize these, these two different groups that are obviously uh, connected. From an employee perspective, that's, you know, as a people first company, it's, it's, we have to start there. Uh, and so right now, um, you know, what we're doing for that group um, is number one, um, picking up and mandating that testing does get done right before our workforce does come back to work. We are making testing mandatory and we're partnering uh, with one of our healthcare partners called Eden Health um, to help administer that process, um, you know, for our employee base so that in advance of coming back, we at least know, is there anyone that's active today or not, right, as kind of a first line of defense? Uh, and I think that goes a long way in building some foundation of, of psychological safety. Uh, and then in addition to that, right, we're going to institute daily monitoring um, and different policies to help make sure that if people aren't feeling well, that we're, we understand, like we're almost going to do a daily check and we'll have to fill out a small questionnaire, one or two questions. Um, and then whatever precautions we have on site, right? And um, you know, most of the buildings that we're in, we're already talking to landlords. I think temperature checking will be something that happens as a first line of defense in the lobbies. We'll replicate that again in our own spaces just to double check and confirm. Um, and we're gonna make sure that you know, in our spaces that especially for our service technicians that they have the right PP, uh, PPE right? Gloves, masks, so that if they're in high risk environments that we can, we can keep people safe. And then I know we're going to spend a whole lot of time uh, talking about the other side of this, the customer side of this, and, you know, how we're working with landlords to create safe environments for our customer base. Uh, and I'll wait till we, we jump into that to go deeper into some of the new operation procedures and processes that we're, we're putting in place uh, on the customer facing side of the business. Great, thanks. And, I, you know, I, I'm mindful you started your comment around having kind of two constituencies that you're trying to serve. And in some respects, Jim has multiple constituencies uh, as well, because he's wearing a few different hats. And Jim, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on some of the, the you're participating in one global moment and one specific moment for New York City, but you're wearing a few different hats and I'm, I imagine there's some tensions and maybe you could reveal to the group what you're thinking through and how you're balancing those. Sure, yeah. So at, you know, in New York, um, our building, we're the majority owner of the building. It's a condo. Uh, we uh, share that with Edward J. Minskoff. And so we have 3,200 people in the building ourselves. So we're trying to, uh, you know, we can control a lot of the environment for ourselves and the experience that the colleagues have coming into the building. We also have to be mindful of our tenants um, as we do lease uh, a few floors in the building as well as Minskoff's tenants. So um, we take that, but then we go outside of New York and we have to balance what we can, you know, what we can ask of other landlords. Uh, you know, we know what they can do because what well, we are a landlord, um, but it's, finding the balance of trying to create a safe environment for our colleagues, but also working with the landlords to make sure that um, they're meeting their other, their tenants needs as well. Um, we feel like we're in a very good position to uh, make requests of landlords because we do have so much experience running the building ourselves. Uh, so that, it's just that happy balance, you know, what they can do and what, what we need them to do um, without going or without them incurring a lot of extra expense. 
Great. Um, I want to pick up on the balance word that you used because one of the decisions that we were talking about ahead of time that we wanted to share with the audience is around how do you strike a balance between multiple needs in terms of actual occupancy, number of people? Um, because in some ways we're supply constrained by elevators, by lobbies, or a variety of other things. And well, maybe not day one, we're not, maybe we won't experience that capacity or critical mass day one, but at some point we will. And maybe Jim, if you could start us off with how you're even approaching that issue of balancing the competing needs of multiple tenants um, and also advocating for yourself as a tenant um, to make sure that you have enough uh, capacity. Yeah, so the, the the whole lobby experience is a, is a big topic and it's a separate topic for, um, you know, the two landlords as well as CBRE who manages our building. Um, so we, we've been working on that. Uh, still more work to be done, but uh, based the way our building is set up and the way security is set up, we know that at a very peak time, we could end up having colleagues standing outside, which we don't want to have, have happen. But um, we are, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, to make sure that, that that doesn't happen. We are planning, and um, the tenants that we've spoken to are planning for a very gradual ramp up, you know, 10 to 20 to, you know, 30, 40% max. Um, we're also challenged in, in New York City, as I'm sure others are, um, with trying to uh, meet the deadline for the elevator code uh, changes. So, uh, we have a modernization project going on for our elevator. So we actually have a car out in, in all of our banks right now going through the, uh, the, the code changes and modernization. So that's, that's throwing another challenge. But um, how, how colleagues queue and, and wait, uh, we're going to put a maximum of four colleagues in an elevator, stand in the corner. Uh, you know, and uh, that's, that is the easy part. It, it's how they come down is the hard part. Um, because we can control everything going up, but we can't control how many people get in an elevator uh, coming down. So that, that's the, the problem with the elevators. But then, you know, once colleagues are in this space, we, we have to make sure we have the right, you know, population that we don't overcrowd to provide that safe distance. And, um, and you know, we, we debated about, well, you know, we have 13 floors. Should we shrink it down to five and then leave the other floors off limits? But then you're not spreading people out. So we've decided that we will, you know, leave all our floors open. And that's where people need to be. They need to be in their own work environment. They just need to be spread out. So, um, and, it, and it has to be critical. It has to be a, a business critical group. That, that yeah, and so I, I imagine you um, as a tenant can can determine what criticality is. But John, you're in kind of a different spot um, where uh, I imagine it's a dice. You can't necessarily say no uh, to people. And so I'm wondering how you're addressing that. But there's also this overarching conversation around privacy, because when you start saying yes, no, maybe so. So could you answer that two-part question of just thinking about from the landlord hat, how are you contending with almost being the judiciary on this? Um, and then secondarily, how are you thinking and weaving through those, those privacy concerns that are out there? Absolutely. So building on Jim's comments, 
Um, we're meeting with all of our tenants and we have presented to them our draft protocols, what, what we are proposing to do in the buildings, um, and then getting their feedback, their buy-in. Um, but as you said, there's a balancing act. So we have, I'll give a couple examples. We have two very large tenants that take up, each of them take up half of an eight car elevator bank. They've asked, could they each have four cars? It's a possibility. We've got our elevator consultants looking at it. The concern is uh, diminution of service, especially when we get above that 20, 25% population. Uh, we may need to get to staggered hours. Um, so the challenge there is small tenants, big tenants. We have tenants that only have one or two floors in a bank and then tenants that have eight or 10 floors in a bank. Um, and balancing that in as fair a way as possible and also recognize that what we do in phase one for that up to 25% population will likely change and iterate as we get to future phases and population numbers um, start to increase. Um, just to pivot to your other question, John, the um, ADA is the law that governs healthcare privacy. There is an ADA exemption um, that allows employers to screen body temperatures. What we've been, as a landlord, um, we've been trying to get clarity um, from the legal community on whether we as landlord can do this. Can a tenant delegate the responsibility for screening to the landlord? Does the landlord bring in a third party? We're gonna be screening all our own employees, um, much like Convene and Marsh, um, but for tenants and also the visitors of tenants, uh, we've gotta get consensus um, across those the couple of dozen firms as to how we're gonna approach this. It's actually much easier if it's a single tenant building or even a single tenant elevator bank. EEOC, is the agency that governs the ADA exemption. Uh, so this is federally mandated, uh, or I shouldn't say mandated because CDC is recommending temperature screening, but not mandating temperature screening. So Brian, how is this showing up in, in your spaces? I mean, what is it that you're doing around both the capacity issues and maybe if you you also are, um, uh, focusing somewhat on what John was talking about around the privacy and, and screening and such. Yeah, so I think from an operational perspective, um, I think we're really focused on, on five key areas. Um, the first is how do you encourage testing, right? Because we can't force our workplace members or customers to test, right? Legally, we can do that of our own employee base, but we can't do that of a customer's employee base. With that said, um, we are partnering um, with Eden Health to assist our, our customers in the event that they do want to have testing and make sure that we can support them in getting that done. We are working, though, with Eden on creative, uh, creating active monitoring um, for both uh, employees as well as our members so that in the event that somebody does 
diagnosed as positive and we know that and that gets confirmed to us by either our customer or if it's one of our own employees that we at least understand from a tracing perspective where people were and who they came in contact with so that we can notify people right because I think the tracing part of this is really important macro to solve this problem, but it also becomes very relevant and important micro within space and within a building as well. And we had issues prior to closing our locations and shelter in place where we had members and employees of our own test positive as well as other members in the building. And it was impossible to know who they had come in contact with in the building. So the right thing would have been is to have the entire building go on a 14 day quarantine but you couldn't do that, right? Relatively speaking. And so we're working with the land, our landlord partners to make sure that in the event that something does happen in the building, how do you at least notify people that they may have come in contact with somebody that ultimately had tested positive, right? So um, the tracing and the communications infrastructure is, is really, really important, not just within our own space, but also back to the buildings in which we operate, especially the multi-tenant assets. Um, the second thing is density and spatial distancing, right? Which um, is something that we're doing in all of the amenity spaces that we run for building owners. It's the same thing that we're doing within our own spaces. At the end of the day, this is going to be dictated, but most likely by local governance, right? They're going to limit gatherings over a certain size. They will most likely limit occupancy per floor, right? And what we're hearing out of Asia in different markets that the government actually said, if you have a, a floor that can hold 300 people, well, guess what? Moving forward, you can only hold 150. In addition to that, you need to design your space to account for sp social distancing within your own footprint. And in Asia, actually, you have government officials that come into locations like Convene, actually do checks, and if you're not compliant, you get fined or shut down. Right now, the question is, in, a, in the United States, are, is our local governments going to go that far? The answer is probably, uh, probably not. But we are maxing the density within any work suite at 50% of whatever the occupancy was. Uh, and then we're doing that same within our common spaces and changing where furniture goes, how flow works. We are doing some of the floor labeling to make sure that we can manage how people move through space. Right. Um, so the density and spatial distancing is, is obviously a really uh, big deal and, and something that. Uh, so we're doing. I'm, I'm curious, Ryan, if I want to I want to tease out and kind of connect what we were hearing from Jim and, and John is um, aside from some of the levers that you can do from a design intervention and some of the things that you might do inside of the workspace. There's this messy conversation um, that. Uh, I don't think prior to this, anyone um, had a governance model or program management structure to contend with, where at some point, you, even if you imply spatial distancy, you're only going to have so much supply. Um, and I'm wondering how um, you are approaching that type of conversation, if you have any examples, or, or I open it up to, to Jim or John as well, of that tension point, because I, I, I imagine some folks on, on this uh, webinar um, panel um, are going to be experiencing that, like they're ready to go or someone else in their building is ready to go and it's creating issues for them. So wondering if anyone could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll jump in and then, you know, please, uh, you know, Jim and Jonathan, you know, jump in. Um, look, I think we... This is a really complex problem and it's complex for a, a couple of reasons. And I love the whole topic here is how do you create peace of mind? The reality is there's only so much that we collectively as 
controllers of space, landlords and service providers can do to create, create peace of mind. And the reality is most companies are going to choose an opt-in model. I find it very hard to believe that the CEO or CEO or CFO of any company worth a damn is going to force their people to go to the office. I just don't see that happening. And most of our clients, right? We have 6,000 customers. Half of our business comes from large enterprise. I was just on the phone with the head of global real estate at PwC before I jumped on this one. For the next however long, it's going to be an opt-in model, right? Unless there's a critical function that has to get done, you have to be in your office for some reason. The reality is that most of our customers, it's going to be at the election and choice of the individual. That's just reality. Great. And the question is that no matter what we do, I don't envision any situation in our portfolio until there's probably a vaccine and maybe, maybe it happens in other markets other than New York. Cause I think New York has its own set of complexity. It's different than the other six markets that we operate in. I do not see us ever bumping into that 50% capacity issue ever. Great. Okay. Not Thanks. in New York city. Um, <laughs> maybe in other markets, but not right. North, candidly. Yeah. Okay. I'm mindful of the time, so I, I welcome Jim and John to, to weigh in, or we could jump to our next conversation around um, amenities and approach to shared spaces. Jim's giving me the go-ahead. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about that. So uh, if, if we solve for, you know, who gets to go in the building, and then we start to focus in on um, how are you providing amenities and services, what's, what's your approach, Jim? So <clears throat> with the way we were approaching this and kind of what Ryan said too is it, it's an opt-in who comes in uh, opts in when they opt in, they, they know there's a risk, right? Everybody bears a little bit of responsibility and, and risk. So what we, <clears throat> we debated back and forth is how much do we provide to our, to our colleagues and how much do we pull back? to create that balance. And, and big thing we had a conversation over was coffee. Um, you know, do we provide coffee for our colleagues? There's a risk when you do that. And so in the end, we decided that the risk was much lower if we provided coffee to colleagues um, and put proper signage up telling them to wash their hands prior to and after they, you know, get their coffee, put the sugar in, they'll touch the refrigerator, all that and then wash your hands after. Um, that was much better risk than if we didn't provide coffee, they'd have to go to the elevator, go down where I think there's a big problem, go out into public space with other people, get ex possibly get exposed, come back in, queue in the elevator line, go up in the elevator and go back to their desk. So um, we decided that we were going to, you know, kind of keep our amenity spaces and keep our amenities for, for colleagues. We're, we're gonna continue to do that. Um, and that we're going to tell everybody, you know, kind of what Ryan said is it's, it's, there's a piece that the landlord could do. There's a piece of the tenant we can do, but then also the colleague has to do their part in this. They have to respect that this is a special situation and they need to take ownership of their actions and their environment. Um, so we felt it was better to give them the amenities that they've always had and ask them to dial back. The one thing that we are not doing initially um, is we have a, an in-house cafeteria. 
and we are not going to serve food initially. We think there's a, you know, we want to look at how the, the population is that, that comes back, because there may not be enough to, to support it. Um, but we're, uh, we're going to encourage colleagues to bring their lunch with them, um, to use the refrigerators, to use the microwaves if they choose to, you know, to heat up lunch, whatever. But the one thing that we just don't feel comfortable serving food yet, and um, we'll wait till, um, you know, we get a broader, a greater population back in the office to, to do that. But everything else should be business as normal once you're in our space from an amenity standpoint. Right. And, and, and Ryan, I know that hospitality is a big component of, of what you all do. So can yeah. you share more about the approach and, and what you all are doing? Um, yeah, look, I mean, we're definitely changing uh, our operational protocols, right? Um, you know, we're moving everything to prepared boxed lunches, uh, you know, no more being able to walk up to a buffet and at a meeting and grab food or walk up to a cafe, a convene and, you know, have us drop a plate in front of you. So we're changing the way we actually deliver the F&B experience. I mean, I think it's actually more critical than ever that we do it now, especially I think for all the reasons that James mentioned, which is reality is you don't want people coming in and out of the building multiple times throughout the course of the day. And so what we're working is not only figuring out how do we repackage our F&B experience in a safe way for our own customers, but also working with our landlord partners to be able to vertically deliver that experience to tenants in the building because most of our large tenants that maybe had a cafeteria in the building are doing the same, same thing that James said, is that they're not opening that today. And people still need to eat, right? And so we are working with our landlord partners on how can we take some of this reimagined F&B experience, not just deliver it to the convened customer, but also vertically support the tenants in the building uh, in a different way. Um, so there's a lot of work that's going on there. Uh, I think the second thing is, you know, making sure that our employees that are serving people, right, are trained, uh, you know, have the right, have the right protective equipment, gloves, masks. Um, we're also increasing our cleaning protocol um, in and around our hospitality and service spaces. Um, you know, thankfully, because of the staffing that we have on premise, the, the amount of cleaning that our team can do relative to maybe a, a, a staffless model or something that doesn't have as much staff, we can keep these environments more clean because we can constantly have our team doing that work, which we will do. Uh, and then um, the last thing I think is really important is what's really being created right now is a new social contract, right? It's a social contract, not just between the landlord and the tenant and us as a service provider, but it's, it's to the individual user as well, right? And back to individuals taking responsibility, we actually have a new social contract that we're making all of our customers and members actually now sign that says, we're gonna do everything we can as a company to keep you safe, but you need to reciprocate. And if you are sick or not feeling well, like you can't come to the office, or if you know your girlfriend or boyfriend tested positive for coronavirus and you're living with them and you decide the next day to come to the office, well, that's a problem. And we are trying to create a new accountability model where the individual takes on more ownership and accountability because it's impossible for us as a service provider, as a landlord, as the driver or manager of tenant experience or an occupier services to, there's only so much we can do and you need the individual buy-in and support uh, to make this stuff work. Great. Uh, so John, you know, after hearing what Jim and Ryan had to say, what resonates with you? And more, more importantly, what's, what's different? 
Um, and maybe what path are you taking that's different than theirs? Well, because we're managing multi-tenanted buildings, um, it does come back to that balancing big tenants that may or may not have food services operating versus small tenants that likely don't. Uh, we're putting in place agreements with our F&B tenants and also um, with our F&B providers for direct delivery to floor. Jim hit it right on the head. We don't want people traveling up and down throughout the, the course of the day. You come in, you go to your floor, you stay there, you go home. And it, that's when it becomes more of a hospitality type experience where you can order things, they're delivered to you, um, and it's a much more safe and secure environment. Um, and it's retail, everybody knows what a New York deli is like at midday. Um, that doesn't work on a going forward basis. And I think Ryan hit it on the head. It's a new social contract. Uh, it's a new way of operating for all of us. And as landlords, um, it's very much on our shoulders to make this as painless for tenants and visitors as possible. They're going through enough stress as it is. Um, so we're trying to take out some of the barriers. So if I could follow up on that, John, what would you invite um, uh, tenants, yeah, trying to think about how to phrase the question, but you know, you're in this unique position where you're balancing a lot of different perspectives. Um, what counsel or advice would you provide to those on the phone um, that want to work and partner effectively with their landlords? What can they do to address some of these issues you just talked about? Well, first and foremost, recognize that it's a give and take and that there are, you have other tenants in the building, maybe even on your floor, um, that have different operating criteria, different needs, and that there has to be some balancing there. Um, hopefully, the tenants are engaged in conversation with landlords. I saw something come across the chat. Um, it doesn't appear, and this was on a, a Rebney call earlier today, that essential office will be released much before June 15th. Um, and that would be best case, but whatever the reopening date is, uh, for landlords and tenants to have partnered and have agreed upon protocols, and then for both landlord and tenant as employer to be communicating to the population and communicating on a regular basis. Uh, what the protocols are and how those protocols may change or evolve uh, at any point in the process. Great. Um, so there's also this, we talked a little bit about moving um, uh, through the building, getting up, who comes in. But if we go back to the beginning of just walking through and into the building, uh, Ryan, what is, what's the experience that you're trying to create to, inspire peace of mind when people first walk through? Well, it's funny. I mean, as a hospitality company, when we were first starting, um, uh, we met with the owner of uh, Patroon, which is a restaurant in Midtown. I don't know if anyone's been there. And it was owned by a, a famous restaurateur. Uh, this guy, his last name was Oretsky. And, you know, we met with him. We said, you know, what's your best advice to give to people in the hospitality business to be successful? And he said three words, hello, coffee, goodbye. How do you feel when you show up? What's the last thing you remember you had with us? And how do you feel when you walk out the door? 
And that's been something that when we think about delivering a convenient experience, like hello and goodbye, that sets the tone for the entire experience. Now in our retail locations where we control that experience, right? Cause you don't have to go in an elevator to get into it. It's relatively easy. And even with some of these new protocols that we're putting in place, we control that and we can put smiling faces there and put compassionate people there and help kind of guide our customer through that experience where it's more challenging is when we're doing it or relying on the landlord to do it with us. And that's where we're spending a lot of our time and energy right now with our landlord partners on how do you manage the welcome experience in a large scale class A office building? And I think the reality is there's no easy answer. You know, if you put four people per elevator, even at 50% occupancy or 25%, you're talking about potentially having to move a thousand plus people through a lobby into an elevator bank up an elevator. And the reality is if you want to maintain some sort of social distancing in your lobby and give people room to queue, depending on how people stagger in, it's not that far of a reach to assume that many people will be standing outside waiting in line to get into a building. And I think that's a problem. And I think we're working with our landlords now on just like, how do we, is there, what's the communication infrastructure need to be between landlord and end user? And is that a mobile application? Is that a, an SMS text notification that says, hey, by the way, just like at a restaurant, you know how long you have to wait for your table to be ready. Is there some sort of message that just says, hey, if you come to the building now, it's a 20 minute wait to get through guess what? Like I might not leave my house or I might go grab a coffee and wait it out. I'm, or I might sit in my car and wait as opposed to go stand in line to get in the building. So there's so much complexity around this hello, especially the hello, I think, and the goodbye, because getting down is equally challenging that again, I think none of us are going to have the right answer today. And I think we're going to have to iterate our way and work together to figure out what the right solution is. And I'll tell you, whatever we do first probably isn't the right answer. We're going to have to work together to figure this out. But it's so it's so complicated. It really uh, is. It's great. It's really interesting to hear what your draft answer is now and kind of we'll follow along and see how that evolves. Jim, you know, what is your draft answer uh, right now? Yeah, I mean, I know we're not talking about transportation, but, you know, when you think about coming to New York City, not, not many people will drive um, and not many people can drive. You'd have gridlock, right? So their, their experience getting just to the building is going to be so traumatic, I think, uh, between public transportation and then walking, you know, with people, past people as they get to the building. When they get to the building, they probably feel like, wow, I finally made it. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, from that standpoint, it's good. But um, it, it's the experience of just trying to get them to the elevator in the quickest time as possible. Um, it is really, I think that's our main objective is how do we do that, um, without having, a, you know, a long wait or, um, or, or not feeling safe because, you know, just the way that the lobby, our lobby is designed, it's going to be, we have very few people that are going to be able to fit in our lobby. Um, so it's just trying to get them through as quick as possible, as safe as possible. That, that's our main objective, but it's going to be very challenging. And um, I like the idea, actually, of uh, kind of notifying people who opt in because you can't, you know, you don't want to be sending all your tenants a note saying, oh, it's a 20-minute wait or a 30-minute wait. But uh, I do like that if people opt in, they could 
they could find out what the weight is to get get upstairs. But uh, yeah, overall, it's just expeditiously getting them up to their space. But I do think that getting that once, like once they get to the building, they'll feel a lot better than um, than they did prior to either on public transportation or uh, on the streets in New York. Right. Great. And John, you're in a unique position to frame that entry experience, um, that hello that Ryan talked about. Uh, what's what's the, the current approach that you all are taking? Well, we're building on what we do already, um, which is modeled more on a, a hospitality type experience. Um, so we're, we will be increasing the number of greeters, uh, our concierge functionality. Um, this actually came up on a call yesterday, um, making sure that our security and concierge team uh, have been trained in de-escalation. So a visitor, for example, that fails the temperature screen and starts to get unhappy, um, to be able to calm that situation down um, without any intervention, as Jim and Ryan have both pointed out, we don't want to give occupants any more anxiety than they already have. Just coming into the city, whatever pathway that is, is agonizing enough. Uh, we're trying to make this as best an experience as it can be. Great. So I, I, I'm gonna on the fly try to summarize some of what I'm hearing, but also switch, us gear, switch gears to the Q&A. Um, what has struck me thus far is that very few of you have talked about we're making a lot of structural changes and we're doing a lot of uh, big moves. There've been a lot of things around behavioral and social and engagement and uh, manifesting whether that's through training or directional signage or, or things of that nature. And I wonder if any of that has any relationship to one of the first questions. I think Brian submitted it saying, um, perhaps many of us have read this Wall Street Journal article from Warren Buffett about the, the ongoing necessity of office space in general. Because Jim put out some pretty provocative things of like, I, I can't imagine that anybody's, or Brian also said it, of I can't imagine that any um, organizational leader is going to require their people to come back. And if we demonstrate efficacy in this distributed environment, what is the import of office space on an ongoing basis? Um, so, so I, do you want to I mean, take that first? Talking. Yeah, let's go yeah, with Jim I, and then, and then have Ryan jump in. And I, I imagine everyone has a point of view on this. <laughs> and so one of the things that, that I've been struggling with, with our leadership is they think this is a big silver bullet. They're going to see a big savings on real estate, you know, going forward. And it's like, hold on, you know, this is a, this is, we've been doing, you know, dealing with this for seven weeks and we have no idea what's happening. Um, you know, people, yes, we are able to work from home. It doesn't mean people want to work from home. It doesn't mean that they enjoy working from home. It just says that, yes, it can be done. I think the biggest uh, thing around this is that the, the people who were very skeptical about work from home or work remote um, have now been, uh, it's been proven to them that, yes, it can be done. So I think the people who wanted to work from home on occasion have won. I think that's, that, they're the biggest winners through this. But it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to cut our real estate in half or eliminate it altogether. There, there is a need for office space. Um, 
And it just, and it might not mean that we cut it, you know, by half. It, whatever the seating setup was before, you're going to have to create bigger seats. So, you know, something we're looking at, we, we were using five and a half or six foot desk. We're now looking at seven foot desk to create, you know, so we're not going to cut back all that space. We're just going to grow the space that the people are sitting in. Our desks today are 30 inches deep. We're going to look at 36 inches deep to create that, that space between colleagues. So um, it doesn't mean that you're going to save on a ton of real estate. You will be able to cut down some space because there will be less people. But when the people are there, you still need larger spaces. So I think that is, you know, and we have to evaluate that over time. Again, yes, it works right now because you don't have a choice. But when you have choice, it, it may, you may see that more people go to the office, um, you know, Tuesday through Thursday instead of Monday and Friday, you know, so. Um, yeah. Ryan, you know, how does this, how does this work with, um, what, with what you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. And what we're hearing, well, what's interesting is, um, there were some really big trends around future of work that were happening, right? Um, part of that was the adoption of remote, right? And virtual work. Um, part of that was around actually individual choice, right? I choose when I go to the office and when I don't, right? Which means I have the right to work from home when I feel like it. I have the right to work from a third place when I feel like it or work from Starbucks if I feel like it. Uh, and then I think experience was something that was really important. And it's probably going to be even more important now because if I have the choice to choose where I work, what actually brings me to the office, right? And I think offices will need to serve a different purpose, at least HQs moving forward, maybe than they had in the past. It's less about individual work and it's probably more about collaboration. It's about culture. It's about gathering. It's, it's something different, I believe, longer term. If I think about the future, I, I use the word hybrid, I think, to define it. And this is something we wrote about four or five years ago. I just thought we were like 20 years away from this. Uh, and I think that this is going to accelerate dramatically. And I'm hearing this, like we're seeing early indicators of this in focus groups that we're doing, uh, in survey work that we're doing of, you know, we've got 3,000 members that we're surveying across all different industries. Um, it just came up in the conversation I had with the head of real estate at PwC. I think the future is going to look like three things. One is HQ, right? And what does that actually mean, right? Moving forward. And what percentage of your office footprint do you define as I need to control it. It's my brand. It's a long-term lease. And this is that experience. The second bucket is what I call third space or outsourced, right? Whether that's flex space or short-term lease space or, a co-working space or a coffee shop, like what's that third space infrastructure look like that people kind of move in and move out of relatively seamlessly. And then the third thing is virtual and remote. And what I'm hearing from most of our more progressive customers is that they're assuming that virtual and remote is anywhere from a quarter to a third. So if I put that third bucket, if I say, okay, a third of the future of work is virtual and remote, whether it's one day a week from home or five days a week from home, like let's, let's just assume that that captures all that. The question I'm now asking myself is, as it relates to office demand is, what is HQ and how much space does that need? And then what percentage of this is flex or outsourced? And I think what we're seeing and hearing is the cost of running your office and the complexity of running it, both for landlords and occupiers, just increased dramatically. And my sense is that for a company like us, that's really just an outsourced services provider, that we will see more 
outsourcing happening as opposed to insourcing, regardless of how the percentages ultimately shake out. That would be, if I had to make a bet right now, I would bet there. And now I think, are we hearing from some customers like I need a ton more office space? Yeah, but they're in the minority. Most of our customers are saying I need the same or less. And even how I'm thinking about the same is different. I might do what I did after 9-11, which if people remember, I started to create satellite spoke offices around the tri-state area, right? And so does suburban office or bespoke locations all of a sudden come back in vogue again? And 12 months ago, actually 90 days ago, everyone was saying the suburbs were dead forever for an office perspective. And now we're hearing, hearing from some of our suburban office landlords <laughs> And by the way, we're getting inundated with short-term flex requests for 12, 24-month, 36-month space in Florham Park, New Jersey, or White Plains, New York, or Long Island. So again, it's too early to tell, but there's no question that some of these big trends have been dramatically accelerated because of this. And the taboo of working from home is gone, executive level all the way down. And I think that that's going to have fundamental impacts on the demand of space moving forward. Um, you know, I would, I'd ask Karen, if you want to go ahead and unmute yourself, I think uh, several people were rallying around a question that you had around bathrooms and managing capacity for bathrooms. So I'm wondering if you, if you could uh, unmute and ask that question and then see what, see what our panelists have to say. Yeah, so sorry that I end up with the bathroom discussion, but it's been really um, active, like amongst my small group. And as we're even looking at floor plans, it's like how you got, you can't put cameras in bathrooms. Like you don't want to touch something. How on earth do you manage the number of people in a space with zero visibility into the room? You can't put any sensors in there and you don't want to touch things. We're all a little perplexed. We know you can like cover urinals and sinks and stuff like that, but that's once you get in the space. How do, how do we get in and out of there? I think I, this one's mine. Uh, <laughs> So retrofitting as much touchless as you can, um, short term, reducing density in restrooms. It may start to feel like you're on an airplane where you're checking before you go into the restroom um, in terms of what's available. You know, the icon that's at the front of the plane that says nothing's available. Um, and then, uh, more smaller restrooms as opposed to the, the very, very large ones. That is something that changes and evolves over time. So there's, what can we do near term? Fortunately, populations will be much lower, but as we do start to build back to the 50 and 75%, um, that does change the restroom experience, absolutely. And that, that will be longer term. Yeah, I think you're right. So good idea. Maybe we just, I mean, we all talked about queuing and not wanting to queue in certain places, but maybe there is validity to some type of a queue outside the restroom to help deal with that near-term volume influx in and out of it. So thank you. That, that does help a little. This gets back well, a little bit to the social contract though, too. I mean, some of this stuff you have to put back onto yeah. individual users and a lot of this, like at least we're thinking about controlling with signage. Right. And just saying X number of people in at one time, please make sure you're standing, you know, you're not using the, the, the urinal next to each other or whatever it ends up being. And, right. and then look, the good thing is, you know, if you've built a bathroom in the last 
two years. Most of that stuff is touchless at this point in time, at least if you're doing anything sustainably, which I think most of us on this phone probably are. Um, And then cleaning is a big deal, right? So increasing the amount of cleaning that's happening in the restroom, um, whether that's with the landlord resources or for us, like we'll have our team go in and you'll do an extra couple wipe downs a day just to sanitize more often. Great. Great. Thank you. I'd love to slip in one more uh, question. Uh, Ankit had a question uh, around uh, the landlords um, and specifically around timing. So if you don't mind unmuting yourself and uh, asking the question to the team here. Hi, thanks, uh, John, for the opportunity. Yeah, so my question is, uh, when you have multiple landlords, and again, I think it's maybe, oh, sorry, multiple tenants, uh, would the landlord have uh, a jurisdiction to say the tenant that you can only work or your offices can only work from a certain time to a certain time to allow a staggered entry and exit to the building? So how much overarching judiciary would a landlord have where he can mandate the tenants for their work timings? I mean. So it's a great question. Uh, one that our legal counsel and our le- leasing people are all over. Um, we owe our tenants a first-class standard. What, a, for, what that meant two months ago is likely different than what it will mean two or three months from now, meaning that there will be some give and take, some rebalancing of what expectations are. Um, There are very few leases that would allow a landlord to just unilaterally mandate something like this, but it comes back to the balancing between quality of elevator service, the the social contract, the new social contract that we will all have, um, coupled with the practicalities of operating the system. Great, thank you. I am looking at our time and I think we're fast approaching uh, the end of the session today. So what I'd like to do is one, thank all the panelists, but also invite Steven um, uh, back on to just kind of wrap us up and and, and share a little bit more from the committee perspective. Uh, Thank you everyone. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, John. Um, Thanks, Ryan. And thanks, John, for moderating so well. I think we could probably talk about this for the next few hours, but I assume everyone's got their next Zoom call to go. Um, I think that was wonderful. Um, It was brilliant. Um, I hope everyone can um, attend next week where we will focus on some of the questions that have been asked, which are more redesigned in the long term. Um, I I think my big thing out of this really is that it it is a very complex situation. Um, It's got lots of players and there needs to be compromise to make it work on all sides. Um, We talked about social contract, but also how landlords work with tenants um, in these complex buildings. So um, with that, I'll say thank you. Um, Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you for the panel. Um, And just invite Tommy if he wants to say a few final words. No, I think you nailed it. And hopefully when we record this, if there's no edits, you can see there was a pretty robust Q&A on the side. So apologies that we didn't get to everybody's questions. Uh, Hopefully we can kind of continue this discussion offline afterwards. But once we get this edited and distributed, you know, there'll be a lot more to learn from. So uh, thank you again to the panelists, uh, our, our, all our sponsors, the Rockefeller Group, our, our learning sponsor. Um, I think everybody here got a lot out of this. Thank you, everybody.
Super. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.